Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Burn Your Draft, an exploration of the Reed College senior thesis process and experience. I'm your host, Frank Tangerlini, and this week we'll be speaking with Elise Kronk. Today, we'll hear from Elise on a macro project surrounding microloans in Mexico. My name is Elise Kronk. Um, oh my God, this fucking metronome. Okay. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> my name is Elise Kronk. Um, I'm from Los Angeles, California. I um, have turned in my thesis. Uh, it's called Correlates in the Will to Pay, a Mexican Microloan Case Study. And what department major are you in? Um, so I was an econ major. Nice. Mm-hmm. What is your thesis about? So the thesis that I wrote is about ability, probability, and willingness to repay a microloan in Mexico. So Mexico is the youngest microfinance market in Latin America, uh, also consequently the least regulated and the most saturated in the brick and mortar microfinance institutions per capita. So I'll start by like walking through the origins of microfinance institutions and government deregulation in the face of like a lot of political instability that establishes a really largely unregulated banking sector, which in turn exacerbates poverty. So the inequality divide, um, both in wealth and income is really big in Mexico. Um, And so using the World Bank's Global Financial Inclusion Survey, I use an ordinary least squares regression analysis to contextualize the optimal loan default disincentives and then further confirm like some literature that I surveyed in development economics that kind of accumulates to state both gender and household income are like the strongest correlates to complete um, and completely repay a delinquency-free report of a micro loan. Hmm. So you figured out the two factors that were contributing the most to this inequality or just where the inequality was present the most? Yeah, that's a good question. So I I wouldn't say that I discovered the two factors. I think from the literature review that I did, gender and income kind of painted the largest picture um, and the, the clearest picture of who does and who doesn't repay their loans. And oftentimes, and I think, you know, in my thesis, I got into this, which is, you know, there's a difference between being able to repay, being unable to repay, and then actually repaying. So um, what I kind of look at is I take this like inclusion survey, which tests or asks questions about this workshop that uh, folks take in Mexico, uh, trying to teach them more about financial literacy and um, ask about demographics. And the survey I use is a follow-up. So Uh, the World Bank would call these people and say, like, you know, can you take this second survey? And so that would be like the representation of the population that I'm looking for. And it just so happened to be that houses where women are the main like household leader or like the head of household rather, um, and the houses that have the most income are those who more likely than not will repay their loans. Interesting. What kind of questions are on the surveys that you use? The questions can range anything from what's your income, how many people are in your household, 
to things like how many times have you checked your credit report? Do you understand what delinquency is? Do you understand how you can check your credit report? Do you have a credit card? How many times in the past year have you visited a pawn shop was a big one because pawn shops uh, function in a way that I think is it is more predatory than a lot of the microfinance institutions that I originally looked at. That being said, after taking a closer look, you know, MFIs, which is the acronym, um, they they are also predatory in their own right. And I think that's a function of regulation. What do you mean by predatory when you're speaking about these institutions or pawn shops and the MFIs? Yeah, yeah. So when I think about this idea of like predatory, financial institutions. And I mean, you can you can go back and forth about whether or not a pawn shop is a quote unquote financial institution. But <laughs> I think what the way that I tend to look at it is, is this institution giving the person who wants a loan the most information and the clearest picture of what their loan repayment terms are? Their, finan- like their financial literacy, making sure they understand the terms and conditions, and or not giving them a really, really bad interest rate. You know, part of it is understanding and information asymmetries. And then the other part of it is, you, you know, making sure that the people who are repaying these loans can actually repay them. So it doesn't make sense to give somebody a loan for, I don't know, $1,000 and set the interest rate at like 24%. And then uh, have their repayment time be, I don't know, a month. Because these people won't have the opportunity to create like a business or like any sort of entrepreneurial um, like venture Mm -hmm. that would generate enough return on investment to both sustain themselves and also repay that loan. These like institutions know that. The interesting thing about microfinance is that a lot of these microfinance institutions will Um, market themselves as being, you know, pro-social justice, pro-women, pro-reduction of income inequality. But they're really quite dishonest about how their operations go because they have nobody overseeing them, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, when you think about gender, perhaps, the reason that loans are oftentimes more repaid in households uh, headed by women is for a variety of socioeconomic factors. But ultimately, you know, there's like this social pressure between women and friends because they get into these lending groups and it's more secure for different households to join lending groups with, I don't know, six or seven of their neighbors and friends. If women are put in charge of the funds, oftentimes these microfinance institutions will, instead of getting like monetary collateral, will take social collateral and like bank on the fact that these women are going to repay their loans because of fear of social exclusion. So, so it's kind of like pretty messed up you know, the way that they look at the situation and the way that they look at how they can increase ROI for the institution. Um, And so what was previously a narrative that was like pro-women, pro-female empowerment shifts over to female burdenship, you know, and these women are now forced to control this very, very valuable resource that they otherwise wouldn't have access to if they didn't come in contact with one of these institutions. It's kind of like um, 
there's pros and there's cons and it depends which institution you're at it depends whether or not you're in a rural or urban place who you're talking to who the agents are if they're a broker etc cetera, etc cetera. you know for some people the, these loans make a big big difference in their lives like it is a real you know it is money and as like a third party, sometimes looking from an ivory tower, it's hard to not sit there and be critical of the overall operations and the overall system of microfinance institutes and their variety of philosophies um, about how they operate. While on a micro level, some of this money really, really matters. And those lending groups, like those groups of people who get together to take out a loan, they can repay it back. You know, a lot of people do repay it back. So it depends on whether or not they want to keep their relationship with the microfinance institute. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, my thesis kind of tied all of this together, but I ended at this idea of social collateral and what can or will disincentivize repayment. What I'm talking about is like a strategic default. And by that, I mean, perhaps a lending group is um, in a rural area and farther from an urban center. So microfinance institutions that they work with have to really bank on the fact that their social collateral is going to reinforce the desire to repay their loans because they live too far out of the city or urban areas to physically go collect on this loan or to visit or to follow up. And so sometimes lending groups are under, like aware of this and will or have the ability to strategically default because they know that their loan is worth less than the amount of time and resources it would take to collect on that loan. Now, microfinance institutions are aware of that as well. And so it's kind of a dance with them to determine what's the optimal interest rate for their loans, which is the highest or the, the strongest correlate to repayment as well. So from the the household side, it's women and household income. From the microfinance institution side, it's more so like the interest rate that indicates like higher repayment. That makes sense that they would separate those things. Yeah. And then that's where you get like the demand and supply. Mm -hmm. So can I ask why this topic? Did you have any interactions with this place of study before or did you come into contact with a reading about this? Yeah, yeah. So I've kind of always been interested in like alternative ways to promote financial inclusion. And so in that research, I kind of came across MFIs, microfinance institutions. And while I came across them, you know, you, you read these articles and you read things and papers about them saying like, oh, like most of this is great. They're very effective and whatnot. And and then you you talk to people and I have family in Mexico and I, you know, I've spent a lot of time in both central Mexico and closer to the border. And you talk to people and th there's a vast difference of opinion about how these work. I, you know, I have cousins in the urban city center and I have cousins in rural Mexico. And it's like, how, how do you differentiate between different class uh, separations, different gender separations, etc.? Because there's all so many different opinions about what these loans do and what they mean and how they can impact a community. And so that's what interested me the most. I think my opinion about microfinance loans has definitely shifted throughout the four years I've been at Reed um, because I kind of, you know, had my eyes on this topic from the beginning of my freshman year 
for a potential thesis idea. Also, it's really interesting because it intersects a lot with Mexican politics. Like if I wanted to spend a lot of time really, really looking into this topic, I could say, okay, there's a lot of foreign investment in Mexico. The political regime right now is somewhat unstable. There's a lot of turmoil that happens in between elections and whatnot. There are so many different ways to extend this thesis that I I felt like when I was writing it, I had to really, really narrow in on one portion. And even then, I think I spent a lot of time fleshing out my varying opinions on the topic. Kind of going off of that, what was the outcome of your project? And was it what you expected it would be when you started? Which is kind of going towards your comment that your opinion of MFIs has changed over your time at Reed? Yeah, I think it was more information. I also think that it was just a closer, like really critical look at the information I had. A student might be encouraged to find a lot of information, find 15 to 20 papers, summarize them, come back, try to generate a literature review, and then from there decide whether or not you want to move on to like empirical analyses or focus on like key facts or key interesting points within the literature review. And from those two approaches, it's really easy to skirt over opportunities to really do a critical close reading of each paper. I've definitely come across papers and read just the abstract and then decided whether or not I liked it and then came back to the paper later and said, oh, you know, there are some really, really interesting key findings here that I didn't notice the first time around. Maybe I should take a closer look. And I think that's what I've got the most out of the thesis process. And that's also what I learned the most at the outcome of my thesis project. I I learned more about myself, I think, and the need to really slow down and take a closer look at the papers that I'm reading. Uh, In terms of like the content of the project, yeah, I mean, my opinion definitely changed on MFIs. I spent a lot of time, like I said, looking at the research that I did and running regressions. And I'm much more hesitant, much more hesitant. I mean, I wasn't very excited about them in the first place, but I'm much more hesitant now to endorse any sort of micro loan because they could be, I don't know, payday loans in disguise or pawn shops in disguise. And I think you have to be really financially literate, very trusting, or have a lot of symmetrical information in respect to yourself and the microfinance institution to really, really like take out of loan and understand what you're getting yourself into. You mentioned before that there was a workshop that was held in Mexico on financial literacy. Yeah. Is that anywhere close to the kind of uh, similar information, I forget the word, is that helping with that at all or is it just not there? Yeah, so I think workshops are really interesting because they vary in effectiveness based on, you know, the the pedagogy, they, the, the buy-in from anybody who attends the workshop, you know, the motivation to go there, and then also the quality and motivation of the teacher or the workshop facilitator. There's a lot of human variation in that. You know, you know, it's one of those like it could or it couldn't situations. I think if we had more data spanning across, maybe like a like a time series that 
would look at the effects of multiple workshops or multiple years of workshops that happen like at the same time within the same population, we would be able to take a closer look at like the actual roundabout effects. For my purposes, the workshop survey was really great because I could assume financial literacy when I was looking at the follow-up survey. Does that make sense? Yeah. I could remove this confounding variable of like financial literacy in respect to loan because this is the specific information that the workshop spoke about. So I, I, I wouldn't have to worry about something like that. That's, yeah, that's a good point. Do you know why these seminars or workshops got put in place? Yeah, yeah, to relieve like the lack of information asymmetries. Yeah, so it's a project that the World Bank has and countries like to provide reports about how they're alleviating economic inequality, particularly countries that are still developing or have like significant urban populations and rural populations. So I I think it makes sense that the World Bank really, really wanted to dig into financial inclusion. That being said, the survey has been around for a long time. And the World Bank, I think the earliest data I could find was like 2004, 2005. That being said, this project could go on for a long, 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 long more time and still be effective in the way that it provides insights into how people have access to capital, how they have access to credit, and how they have access to opportunities to learn more about what that means. So sorry, to kind of switch trains of thought here, did you encounter any unexpected challenges during your thesis process? Mm -hmm. So very, very early on, I realized that a lot of the papers I was reading or was going to have to read were going to be in Spanish, which is fine. But it became an issue when I had to look at the data sets and the surveys and translate the questions into something in English that could be represented or written in my thesis, rather, uh, that would make sense. And then also kind of manipulate the data set around what the translated questions represented. So for example, there, like I previously mentioned about pawn shops and it was, have you visited a pawn shop in the last six months? And then there was a follow-up and it said, if yes, when or how long ago, right? And so there's a write-in portion there and folks can write in whatever they want and it's in Spanish, but the World Bank has a translation. And in that translation, the data isn't represented as like a numerical value. It's represented as an immutable value. So I would say, okay, yes, I visit a pawn shop and I visited it four months ago, right? And if I visited it four months ago, the the cell in the data set should say four months, right? But how do we indicate no? Mm. Does that mean zero months? Are we still indicating yes? So so it was just like messing with the data set and really cleaning it up to try and figure out what variables I was really looking at, how I could find them in a clean manner, and how I can reduce the amount of empty or missing observations or nonsensical observations that were in the survey and translated into the data set based on translation issues. Cool. Did COVID-19 affect your working at all or was that okay? Um, I, I think it really motivated me to finish early. I kind of saw or was thinking, you know, I'm a planner. So I was really thinking about how I was going to make sure that my thesis was turned in on time and that I was also ready personally to deal with whatever COVID was going to bring, you know. What skills do you think you acquired or strengthened during this experience? Oh my gosh. I think my ability 
to work with data, like larger data set. I think it's really hard to know how good you are at any specific skill or any specific like programming language or method of analyses until you've like really done an application of said like skills and tools to real world situations. And so I think it really helps and re- reinforce the idea that, you know, I, I can work with large data sets. I can clean them and manipulate them. And by that, I mean run regressions. And I do know what like logit and probit and ordinary least squares regressions are. And um, I can look at a data set and say, okay, before I even like run a regression, this is what I see. And I can, you know, specify a different regression equation. It's just like, it's really refreshing to hear that the quantitative skills that I need to back up that information exist. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what I, what I got the most out of it. The follow-up question to this is, how do you think your thesis experience will inform your life after Reed? Do you see those quantitative skills and the qualitative skills that you picked up being part of your life after Reed? Do you plan on going into econ? Yeah, so I've thought a lot about it. Um, I think, I I don't know if I would go on to go straight to grad school or um, go straight into a specifically um, economic profession. I don't know, it's difficult to say because, you know, the, the things that you learn as an econ major translate to so many different professions, you know, you can't really, can't really narrow it down to just, um, you know, econ. And so, you know, and so um, I, I thought a lot about going into finance. Um, I was really serious about uh, moving to Boston for a little while to do data work. And right now I'm doing an internship um, with the National Crime Victims Law Institute and um, that internship is on, on a grant from the Center for Life Beyond Read. And so my job at this internship is data analysis. Like I do market research for um, sponsorships and donations um, to fund like events and conferences and whatnot. And so I, I really like that because it feels like what I learned as an econ major, you know, I'm looking at data that's provided to me by like these community surveys Um, And it's my job to kind of suss out the insights that might be attractive to uh, donors or potential sponsors. And it's really fun, you know, because on on one part, I'm working for a nonprofit and I have, I I like to prioritize um, my desire to uh, engage with like social justice uh, organizations and nonprofits. And so that's really great. And that fulfills one part of like, what I want professionally. And then the other part is like, I, I just really like numbers and I really like, I really like looking at what, what they translate and what they say about how we move through the world. Yeah, I could see that from your thesis, especially. It's not just an economic thing. It's definitely got a lot of sociology in there, which was yeah. very cool. So that's all the questions that I have. Is there anything else you wanted to add about your thesis before we wrap up? Yeah, so I think a really, really important part of the thesis process in general, and I think this doesn't really have to do with like necessarily specifically my thesis, but I think part of the thesis process in general is to try new things and to really like sit and enjoy and like take time to slow down and look at what kind of impact 
your thesis and your project has on yourself and how you're improving as you move through the project. And I think that that was the biggest, you know, looking back and reflecting on it, you know, hindsight is 2020. Um, I, I wish I had taken a second to do that because, you know, you know, the common like, oh my gosh, I have to turn in my thesis. I have to turn in my thesis situation that I think a lot of people run into um, and that I ran into could have, I don't know, been improved or could have felt a lot less like a lot less pressurized, you know, that whole situation, mm-hmm. less of a pressure cooker had I really, really taken a break and slowed down. And so um, I think the end of my thesis really reflects that. And I took a long time to think about like uh, extensions of policy analysis and what it means to like rhetorically, what it means to complete, completely rep- like repay a loan. Thank you, Elise, for your time and for telling us about your thesis and the amount and kinds of work that went into it. Thank you for listening, and I hope you join us again to talk to more seniors about their thesis and better understand why you'd want to burn your draft. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Frank Tangerlini. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class in 1990, with technical advising from staff member Joe Janiga. Nate Martin, staff member in class of 2016, is our project manager. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillianne Pham, class of 2020. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.